Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Today we will continue on with our ongoing Talking Market series with a focus today on equities, though we'll of course spend some time on the macro landscape, a monetary policy, this including some expectations for the year ahead. Uh, joining me for the conversation today, uh, glad to welcome back to the program Dan Suzuki, a Deputy Chief Investment Officer with Richard Bernstein Advisors, RBA. Uh, Dan, it's always great to have you here on the podcast. Thank you for dropping by, spending some time today with our listeners. Welcome back. Thanks, Daniel. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to be on. I look forward to the discussion today. Absolutely. So as a starting point, maybe we can talk big picture in reference to the U.S. economy. I'm curious to hear your thoughts in terms of the health of the U.S. economy. We had that subdued CPI print today. We saw a bit of a pop in the markets. I know that's only one component, but what are your thoughts on where we are today as well as the prospects for a recession as we're looking ahead into 2024? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, I think, you know, the big question on a lot of people's minds uh, right now is, uh, you know, soft landing or hard landing. And I think, you know, it's a question, it's it's a term, soft landing versus hard landing, I think you need to sort of first define, because I think there's different interpretations. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, for, you know, people talk about hard landing relative to the economy. And so hard landing would be a recession, soft landing would be no recession. Um, And I think the answer of whether we have a recession or not, you know, comes down to maybe more of a question of timing uh, than it is sort of absolute yes or no. Because at the end of the day, of course, we're going to have a recession at some point. More important than the if is really the when. I mean, we have to remember that 90% of economists went into this year predicting a recession uh, that never came. Uh, and, and I think when you get to the heart of economic forecasting, I think there are some issues that people really have to own up to. Some people are good at identifying problems. Uh, for instance, if you go back to, you know, 2007, 2008, you know, some people identified that we had a housing bubble that was eventually going to burst. But some of those people were making that, that call in 2005, which ultimately turned out to be right. But there was a huge timing component to it. So people are so often, sometimes people are good at identifying what the cause of a potential recession could be, but they're not so good at the timing. And, and I have really yet to meet anybody that is good at forecasting the timing of a recession um, if it's not imminent. I think if you identify a pro, uh, really you have two sort of scenarios. If you look at economic forecasts, you know, sometimes economists publish forecasts out 10 or 15 years, which is, you know, some by absurd, absurd by some, uh, some uh, perspectives, but, you know, they do it. And what you see when you look at those forecasts, typically the economists either forecast no recession for the next 10 or 20 years, which is sort of absurd in its own right, uh, or they, uh, they forecast a recession that's happening imminently in the next 12 to 18 months because, you know, they're seeing those signs. There's really nothing in between, and I think that goes to the heart of, you know, economic forecasting. As, a, as an investor, though, you know, these are not really particularly helpful. Uh, so knowing that, the best next best option, rather than trying to forecast the exact timing of a recession, is to identify inflections in the economic cycle in as timely a fashion as possible. 
which you know seems easy, but in itself, you know, with with all the moving parts within the data, there's always some piece of data that's contradicting everything else. So the labor market will be strong, but the manufacturing sector will be weak, or or things like that. And so you always have to sort of parse out, you know, the noise within the data. Let alone, you know, uh, dealing with things like revisions with the data, one-time adjustments, and things like pandemics. Uh, it can be incredibly difficult, which is why, you know, if you look at the NBER, who's charged with officially announcing, you know, recessions when they start and end, you know, they're typically six months to a year late in actually identifying a recession. So, you know, I think just being able to identify them is, is a, as they're happening is probably the best way rather than, say, you know, nine months from now, a year from now, that's when the recession is going to be because the reality is nobody has that type of visibility. You know, years ago, when my kids were younger, you know, I'd often get asked the question, you know, what inning are we in in this cycle? And I'd always tell them that economic cycles were probably more like potty training uh, than they were to any baseball gaming. Because if you if you go back to when you potty train your children, if you have children, it's really not about forecasting, you know, the specific time where, you know, they were going to have to go to the bathroom, your, your children. Really, it was about identifying the signals that you look for when they do have to go. Uh, so you don't say, oh, well, they had like 16 ounces of water two hours ago, so therefore they're going to have to go to the bathroom in you know, 45 minutes from now. What you do is you look for the signals when they start dancing around, they do a little potty dance, they, they cross their legs, and then you know that you got to take them to the bathroom. I think the, the same is true when you're looking for you know, whether or not we're going through a recession. Right? What are the signs of a, a going through recession? When you look at the economic indicators, and they have to clearly be showing signs of deceleration. The contention that I have right now with people that are saying that we're imminently going into a recession is that, you know, broadly, the economic data has actually been pretty resilient, if not accelerating. Whether you look at, you know, jobs growth, uh, you know, people filing for unemployment claims, you know, was picking up in the spring and the summer, but has now dropped back. To, to basically pre-COVID levels of the low two, 200,000s. Similarly, you know, that we get the payroll jobs numbers every month. You know, they're running, jobs growth annually is running a little less than 2%. That's also right in line with the pre-COVID average. More importantly than that, you know, if you look at household incomes, you know, disposable incomes are running at 7%, you know, growth. If you exclude the pandemic periods with all the stimulus, you're talking about the highest growth in disposable income that you've seen in over a decade. And there were there have been very weak areas of the economy, like you know, the manufacturing and goods and transports and shipping parts of the economy, they've been terrible. They are you could argue that they were already in a recessionary territory, but if you look at all of those those areas of the, uh, of the economic data, most of them have actually shown decent improvement in the last three to six months. And so, you know, I would contend that you know eventually we are going to go into recession, but none of the data that I look at says that that's happening imminently. So don't get me wrong; I think the consumer is slowly cooling. Uh, but the, the reality is that household balance sheets and incomes are still so robust right now that it's going to take time for those small splinters that we're starting to see today to actually turn out the cracks and cra- turn into cracks and crevices that would signal, you know, that we're going to recession. 
Uh, you know, probably the thing I'll, I'll end on on this question is, you know, there's an old one of my favorite quotes in economics is uh, I call, call from this, this economist named Dorn, Dornbush. He said, in economics, things take longer to happen than you think they will, and then they happen faster than you ever thought they could. You know, we're constantly sort of, you know, whipsawing the markets, pricing in, you know, a boom and bust economy every three months. And the reality is the economy is just not moving that quickly. And for the time being, you know, nothing in the data suggests that we're imminently falling into a recession, even if, you know, late next year or the year after that, we, we eventually fall into recession. It just doesn't seem like it's happening right now. Well, Dan, thank you for sharing those perspectives as a follow-up to work monetary policy into this. I'm curious your thoughts on the FOMC, what their course might be for monetary policy. It's interesting, thinking back to the beginning of this year, there was concern, I recall, that over-tightening risk from the Fed might inadvertently trigger a recession, though here we are coming Coming off of the latest FOMC meeting, we did see this pause, uh, though Chairman Powell did leave the option on the table for further tightening. But you wonder what the course might be as we head into Q1 and then what the prospects are for rate cuts in 2024. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I think this is actually where we, you know, we go back and we can revisit this uh, whole idea of soft landing because, you know, I mentioned the 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 soft or hard component of that uh, really refers to whether or not we go into recession, but the landing part of that, you know, really refers to inflation and whether or not you're going to be able to land inflation or bring inflation down to target. Uh, with, with or without causing a recession. But the reality is, if you look at where inflation is today, you know, we got the, as you mentioned, we got the CPI report out this morning. We're still well, well above the Fed's target of 2%. And so if growth, if inflation stabilizes or, uh, you know, God forbid, reaccelerates from here, then you're talking about a no landing scenario. And I think at the heart of it is in order to land a plane to go with, run with that analogy, you need to get your speed down. And it's very possible, as I sort of alluded to before, that a lot of, many parts of the economy are actually beginning to recover. Uh, and it, it's possible that growth continues to be more resilient than the markets expect. And then the Fed might have to come around for another pass at landing inflation. Now, I don't know if it should be the base case that we're going to have some sort of sustained reacceleration in inflation, but nobody's even really talking about that scenario. But ironically, if you think about it, you know, if, you know a stronger growth and higher inflationary environment could actually perversely increase the likelihood of a recession or a hard landing because if, if, if we're already above 3% inflation and and we see a reacceleration from here, you know, it, chances are the Fed's going to come back in and slam on the brakes. And that could be ultimately, you know, what, uh, you know, brings forward, you know, a potential recession. So I think, you know, as I think about where the market's priced for, uh, you know, the, the Fed and policy from here, I think the, the first thing to, to, to note is that the Fed's no longer in the driver's seat. You know, data dependent essentially means that they're going to do, they're just going to respond to lagging indicators. So then you have a lagging indicator responding to lagging indicators. What's going to be the leading indicator? Well, it's going to be growth. 
And I think as I meant, as sort of laid out, I think in the near term, uh, you know, I think you have some potential supports for the near term outlook for growth. That means that this sort of, you know, imminent, uh, you know, cuts that the market's pricing in for next year, you know, the Fed's going to work really hard to try to, 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 to dissuade the market from believing that it's going to be cutting so quickly. Um, but then as you get later into the year, it's very possible, um, you know, that you do see growth start to slow. Uh, and, and then the Fed, you know, potentially may be cutting, you know, by the end of the year. But ultimately, that's going to come down to growth. Do I know what growth is going to look like in fourth fourth quarter of next year? I don't. So that's why, again, I'm really going to be looking at signs of, you know, the data that's currently looking pretty decent and, and healthy, signs that that's rolling over, because ultimately that's going to res- mean that the Fed's probably going to be a little bit easier, you know, going forward. Clearly a lot on the macro landscape that needs to present itself, though, just thinking back to your macro backdrop a bit earlier in the conversation against that, what are your expectations for earnings growth over the next couple of quarters? And I know we're beginning to wrap up here the Q3 reporting season. Any reflections, takeaways from uh, the company reporting we've seen over the past few weeks? Yeah, well, I think even before we we dive into, you know, the outlook from here, I think it's important to recognize because I don't think that everybody, uh, you know, has fully uh, digested the fact that there's there's already, you know, a huge uh, divergence between what's happening with corporate profits and what's happening with the economy. I mean, if you think about this third quarter earnings season that we're wrapping up, you know, by most Wall Street measures, we're looking at basically a flat to slightly up year-over-year growth. You know, relative to that, you know, as we saw in the third quarter GDP uh, print, uh, you know, nominal GDP growth is, it has, was essentially surging in the third quarter. You know, so there's already a huge disconnect where, you know, corporate profits or earnings have essentially been, you know, in, in hugely negative numbers earlier this year, and, and the economy has been very strong. Well, I think that the reason for that um, also is going to play into what the outlook is going forward, because why have earnings been in a recession, yet the economy has been strong? Well, the mix uh, of the two is completely di- different. You know, you think about uh, the economy and GDP, it's very, it's very domestically oriented and also hugely weighted toward the U.S. consumer. If you think about corporate profits, it's much more a reflection of, you know, business to business, uh, investment spending, uh, capex, uh, exports and trade and goods and manufacturing. So that part of the economy, as I alluded to before, has been incredibly, incredibly weak. Big parts of the, those areas have been, uh, you know, essentially at recessionary levels. So it's no, it's no wonder that earnings have been so incredibly weak. So as you think about that, I think that's very important to the outlook going forward because, as, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of those areas that have been incredibly weak uh, for most of this year are actually showing pretty solid signs of recovery. You know, shipping activity has come off of the lows. You know, the PMIs um, are off the lows. You know, labor market remains resilient. So I think it's reasonable to conclude, you know, that there's actually a decent amount of momentum within that part of the economy that drives, you know, corporate profits. Now, when I say that, people uh, are always giving me pushback saying, well, how could that even be possible, you know, to see profits happen when we haven't even had the recession? But 
you know, I think the jury's out there. I mean, the, the, if you look at the data, you know, we've gone from double-digit negative earnings growth to now positive. So we're well into the earnings recovery. So I don't, it's not even a debate about whether it's happening. It's really a debate about how long it's going to last or how high earnings can go. And to, to that end, to answer your question, Daniel, I do think that the third quarter earnings season, you know, there's a lot to, to like. Clearly, the market reaction wasn't hugely you know, positive because I think mostly because expectations, you know, had gotten so high. But if you think about it, you know, there's a lot of solid momentum within the data. And if you look at the actual results for the third quarter, you had both sales and earnings surprised to the upside. EPS surprised by, you know, over 7%. And I think one of the reasons the market was a little bit uh, didn't have as positive a reaction was really about guidance and what the the company commentary about you know the fourth quarter. And I think that at the end of the day, you know there was there are concerns about you know loss of pricing power, which is to be expected. You know as inflation has come down. I mean, if you look at the margins, the profitability uh, of corporate profits, you know as ex- inflation was accelerating. You know, clearly there was a big benefit to pricing power. So as that comes down the other way, you know, you're going to be giving some of that back, and that's to be expected. But I think, you know, the other takeaway from this earnings season were, were that companies were actually able to offset the cut, the the loss of pricing power with cost cutting and better efficiencies. Now, I think the the skepticism from the market is that you can't do that forever. You know, at some point, you, you know, you can't cut costs any further. You can't eke out any more efficiencies. So if you continue to lose pricing power, you know, that's going to be, be very negative for overall profits. And that's very true. But I think what was critical this, this last earnings season, this third quarter earnings season, is that we've turned the corner on top line revenue growth, on sales growth. And so while sales growth was decelerating, you know, for, for quarter after quarter, you've now actually started to see sales growth accelerate. And if that continues, then there may not be a whole lot more room for cost cuts, but if you've turned the corner on sales growth, now you can offset any loss of pricing power with op- positive operating leverage. And I think that's how accelerations and earnings recoveries always uh, progress. Uh, it starts with cost cutting, and then it you know continues. The, it, they pass the baton onto operating leverage as sales recover, and that's exactly where we are today in this recovery. So I actually think there's a lot to be positive, uh, to be optimistic about, and I think at least for the next quarter or two, you'll continue to see acceleration in earnings growth. Beyond that, you know. Who, who knows? And that's why we're, we're going to continue to monitor, you know, our, our indicators to see if there's any inflection up ahead. Dan, just hearing your take, a lot of alignment with the views of our chief investment office, with the uh, turning the corner of the profits recession, expectations for earnings growth in coming quarters. I do want to get your performance outlook for uh, U.S. equities as we head into 2024. Just for some background, our chief investment office uh, recently came out with a June 2024 S&P price target of 4,500. So we do see some decent upside for equities as we head into to the year ahead. What about your thoughts, near to medium term outlook for equity performance, as well as any sector preferences uh, you'd like to share with us? 
Yeah, well, I, you know, the first thing I'll say, Daniel, is the best part uh, about having uh, not uh, about no longer being on the sell side as a strategist is I don't have to put out those those uh, S&P targets anymore. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, you know, especially in volatile markets like this where you get these big swings, you know, something like uh, a price target can get uh, pretty stale pretty quickly. I mean, if you think about it, the market's, uh, uh, you know, a, a stone's throw from 4,500 already today. So what was once a bullish forecast for the market is basically kind of, you know, a, a flattish forecast. So, you know, I think for me, uh, I think there's uh, there's reasons to be, you know, reasonably constructive on the outlook for in the near term outlook for markets. But um, you know, I think there's you have to be capped in sort of, you know, how how high markets can go here. And, and, and let me just elaborate a little bit. I think, you know, at RBA, we always focus on profits, liquidity, and sentiment. That's the sort of the lens with which we view the world. Well, from a profits perspective, we kind of already addressed that. I think we're clearly into the profits recovery, and I think that's supportive, you know, not just for the equity markets broadly, but particularly for cyclical uh, stocks. Um, and so I think that's a positive. You know, liquidity, um, which has kind of been all over the place this year, um, it actually looks like it's either stabilizing or easing, you know, depending on, uh, you know, the liquidity metric you're looking at. Most recently, you know, we had the uh, the survey of, of senior loan officers for banks, you know, asking banks whether they're tightening or lending standards. Now, they are absolutely tightening at a pretty rapid pace, but not quite at the pace, you know, they were three months ago. And so that's just another example of, you know, things being tight, but actually on the margin, you know, directionally easing. I think you're seeing that all across, you know, the various liquidity metrics. Um, and I think that's pretty supportive if that were to continue. And then sort of the last um, pillar, if you will, really is, is that of sentiment and valuation. And that's where, you know, the market is extremely bifurcated, you know, most assets out there, most parts of the market, whether sectors, regions, si sizes, and styles, are incredibly, incredibly cheap. Um, but you do have the biggest stocks in the market that are still very, very expensive and take up, you know, make up a huge portion of the overall, you know, market cap. Um, and they're skewing, you know, all of those numbers. And so, from that vantage point. If if you were to see a big breakout uh, in markets to to you know beyond the range we've seen over the last year, I think that would require uh, some broadening out uh, of leadership, which comes at the risk of the leadership we've seen, right? Because if leadership broadens out, you could you might start to see a rotation out of you know the expensive mega caps into the other 493 names in the S&P or, you know, the rest of the world. And if that were to happen, you know, the selling pressure could, you know, cap out what that means for the overall major market indices. That's why I think, you know, for those and other reasons, you know, it's hard to imagine, you know, huge, huge near-term upside from here for markets. But, you know, can the market absolutely go, you know, higher uh, from here? Um, I think, you know, that's reasonable given the support of macro uh, fundamentals. So just with respect to positioning, what are your thoughts as far as any sector preferences at this time? And even looking outside of the U.S., any regions look attractive at the moment? Yeah. So I think the big theme uh, right now is twofold. I think you want to look for uh, cheap 
the cheaper assets out there, which, I, as I mentioned, is basically everything um, outside of a handful of stocks. And so, um, you know, cheap combined with cyclical, because I think it's not just the, the U.S. profit cycle that's recovering. I think we're basically at the inflection point for the global profit cycle, in which case, you know, you can really buy cyclicality and cheap cyclicality everywhere. So what does that translate into from a sector perspective? I think, you know, energy looks attractive, industrials look attractive. Uh, and then from a, you know, size and style perspective, I think, um, you know, small caps, you know, cheaper names within the value space. Um, and then if we, do, if we are indeed, you know, at the inflection point in the global profit cycle, you know, having some expo- global exposure to that, well, emerging, broad emerging markets, you know, should be a pretty big uh, beneficiary of that and are basically priced for recession. Uh, so I think, you know, you know, you can you can look at it from all those different angles. I think they're all attractive here. Well, Dan, thank you for covering all of the ground that you have for our listeners. Before we wrap up, any final thoughts, takeaways, anything you would like to reinforce? Well, I think the the, the thing that I would reinforce right now is that uh, you could throw a dart at a dartboard uh, and and hit something cheap. Almost everything out there you know, is anywhere between dirt cheap and, you know, probably at most fairly valued. So from that vantage point, you know, everybody's worried about recession, but the multiples, you know, for most investments are pricing in at least a decent, you know, probability of recession. Uh, So a lot of the bad news is baked in. And you, that coupled with the fact that near-term corporate, in the near-term corporate profits are accelerating, I think it's a reasonably good time, you know, to take advantage of these, you know, these these very very cheap valuations. So uh, I think you know broadening out, thinking about diversification here at a time where diversification passively doesn't exist. I mean, the, la- the one thing I'll mention is that you know people are very comfortable with rebalancing their portfolios. You know, if you're a 60-40, you know, risk uh, tolerance and because of equity performance or bond underperformance, your equities go to 70% of your portfolio, then people are pretty comfortable rebalancing back to 60. But if you think about the other major exposures in the market, you know, the U.S. with as a portion of the entire world has gone from 40% or so back in, you know, 2010 to well over 60% today, but no one's talking about rebalancing their their regional exposure. The the Magnificent Seven that everybody's talking about has gone from 7% of the S&P 500's value to 30%, yet nobody is talking about rebalancing those exposures. So just from a basic, prudent diversification and rebalancing perspective, I think it makes sense to start to consider some of these things uh, in your own portfolios. Well, uh, Dan, you've been very generous with your time for sharing your insights with our listeners. Uh, Always a pleasure having you on with us, and I do look forward to continuing the conversation as we head into 2024. A lot here that we can indeed follow up on. Though nice catching up with you today, Dan, as always. Thank you again. Thanks, Daniel. My pleasure. Absolutely. Again, today we have been speaking with Dan Suzuki, the Deputy Chief Investment Officer with Richard Bernstein Advisors, RBA. I just want to highlight to our listeners, the UBS Market Moves podcast channel is available where podcasts are found. Uh, This includes Apple Podcasts, Spotify, as well as now Amazon Alexa. Be sure to visit UBS.com slash podcasts to view the entire UBS podcast offering. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan. 
Dan Cassidy, thank you for joining us. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy. 